0: Hello, my friends. Today we have a guest host episode with Brad Sousa, the CTO of AVI Systems, hosting Howard Beauville, the head of IBM Hybrid Cloud. And they discuss how to propagate your vision throughout an organization, IBM's recent innovations in the hybrid cloud space, and why it's important to find engineers that not only have the right talent, but also have the right attitude
1: for the job. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast.
0: So uh, here's where I think I'd like to start. First of all, Let's just get to know uh, each other. I'd like everybody to get a chance to get to know you. Would you would you mind if I took just 60 seconds and gave everybody the one minute what every man, woman, and child should know about Brad Shtick? We can get that out of the way and get That's the conversation. Oh, okay. So I'm CTO at AVI Systems. We're a, uh, a global solutions provider, uh, technology integrator, specifically focused on media and collaboration. So. The space that we're in, if you're a corporate customer, we'd probably be doing conference rooms and UC and streaming and online and all that kind of stuff. If you're a healthcare provider, it'd be telehealth. If you're federal, it might be a command and control or classified collaboration, that kind of stuff. That's that's the world I live in. I tell people I have the best job on the planet and I actually believe it. And it's partially because I get to play with really cool stuff and work with uh, amazing customers and help solve problems for them. And I get to meet all sorts of cool people, you being one of those. So tell us a little bit about you. How did you get started in the tech business?
1: The, um, through serendipity and from uh, missing a bus, but that's a longer conversation. But the, um, <laughs> but I guess there's, um, <laughs> there's, there's three kind of chapters um, in my career, Brad. One is um, I spent a reasonable stint in telecommunications, so working for Comcast, in the UK, uh, but obviously a very not brand in the US. And then British Telecom, uh, primarily originally in product developments, but then moved into more commercial roles. Then moved into banking and did a stint at uh, Bank of America as the uh, the CTO across there and led a number of the initiatives to drive the digital transformation of that business. And now into IBM, um, kind of building upon, I guess, all of the knowledge, experience, and mistakes I've made of those two preceding chapters <laughs> to actually chart the, the journey of the strategy that we have here at IBM for hybrid cloud.
0: Yeah, hybrid hybrid cloud is something I want to talk about. I'm excited. I'm a consumer of hybrid cloud, and and so I'm I'm anxious to learn more. But uh, a little bit about you did. The, the, it doesn't sound like you necessarily plan to get into the tech business. You kind of found your way into it. That's the way it was for me. I, I did not start out in tech. I started in strategic planning and marketing and then ended up in tech and loving it. Uh, was there somebody that kind of influenced you or was it, how, how did you find out that you actually liked it?
1: I guess it's very often the, uh, it's like the scene from the Godfather. And every time you try to get out, it kind of <laughs> drags you back in again. <laughs> so I, I started in advertising um, as a database programmer doing Data analytics very slowly, based upon the speed of the actual computers back then, for direct mail lists, direct marketing, um, kind of drove the actual greater um, response rates. Much to the chagrin of the creative people in the actual advertising agency, that this geeky kid was actually getting a better response rate through market segmentation than they were getting from their creative um, elements. so kind of kind of came out with that, and then moved into um, into networks. Um, and networks is a deeply interesting area in terms of the complexity of the technologies there. Uh, and kind of came through that through kind of the emergence of kind of .com, moving from analog to private circuits. So you're really at the heart of the digital transformation and the internet. Um, and then kind of you have broadened your skills as your curiosity um takes you further, then you actually figure out, actually, this is the thing for me. Um, so, you, um, so then continue to actually no longer be a de- technology denier, but a technology acceptor. Um, yeah. but, but in a in a business context, perhaps, because the, the thing that always interested me was actually how you can make tech work in a, in an applied way as opposed to a pure science way.
0: Well, that's interesting because I didn't know this, this side to you, but I also started marketing uh, more uh, with financial services, went into I was a partner in an ad agency in Beverly Hills for a number of years and had some customers or clients that were tech clients. And that was kind of my introduction to it. And I discovered when, uh, looking back at it now, as a teenager, I guess I was doing design and engineering and just didn't know what that meant. <laughs> yeah. And there was like this knack, I guess, that kind of brought me into the industry. And I've never been able to leave it. I'm addicted to it, and I absolutely love it. What keeps you passionate about it?
1: It's just the forever-changing nature. You can never rest on your laurels. The environment always changes around you in a business context. Yeah. And therefore, how you kind of change the technology to actually um, meet those changing needs pace. And they're very kind of complex system-based problems to solve for. So there's lots of dots that you have to join. And you right. kind of really kind of take the broadest aperture. So. I think from a, a, a professional basis and a skills basis, you're always developing. But I think it also develops you as a person because because unless you've got a sense of humility as a technology <laughs> professional, you <laughs> yeah. will always get left-sided. You've got to always work on the basis that there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know I don't know. Right. And that ap- appeals to my nature, which I'm just a, a natural collaborator. I get my energy working with, with smart people um, and asking lots of curious questions, sometimes dumb, but dumb gets you to a point of actually being less dumb. Um, so kind of balances both sides of the actual left brain, right brain.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. It,
1: I find it, uh, you
0: know, as a CTO in a tech company, I, I I say often to people who don't understand what it is that I do, I say that I'm the chief geek in a company full of geeks. And and it's interesting because a lot of engineers they prefer working with things rather than working with people. But sounds to me that. that that you and I are alike in the sense that it's a combination of both. I like what I like what the tech does for people, and that's kind of what keeps me passionate it, about it. it
1: that's, that's a really interesting thing you say there, Brad. Yeah. In my old role, kind of you get increased responsibilities uh, in, in my previous company, which I learned a huge amount of things. Um, towards the end, my organization was twenty three thousand people. So I was spending more time on I was spending more time on psychology and sociology than I was on technology. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which I kind of enjoyed to a degree, but I thought it was time to get back into tech um, and get the tech in front of theology as opposed to the socio or the uh, psycho in front of theology.
0: Yeah. So the T and CTO for you was the chief therapy officer, not the chief technology <laughs> officer, right? It's very good.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. You learn a lot through that process, and I and I did. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I enjoy that. What do you when when you're not leading a, a global organization like you are now, what what do people find you doing? You have particular hobbies or places you like to go? Just, or? just family.
1: So I've spending time yeah. with my family. The um, kind of best start of the day is when I have breakfast with them and the best finish of the day is when i kind of having uh, uh, dinner with them at the evening. I've got two young children, a five year old and an eight year old.
0: Oh, nice. And Great
1: ages. kind of seeing how they develop is kind of watching kind of various new releases of software being released in their brains. <laughs> <that> they broaden <laughs> their perspectives um, until I get into an educational system, which then narrows their perspectives.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I have four kids and every one of them are in the industry to some degree or another. So I I guess I've passed on my addiction very, to them too. Very much.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about IBM and, in particular, about hybrid cloud. Can you give us maybe a, a high-level view of, of where IBM is today and, and how hybrid cloud fits into the overall offer? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so we're kind of a, a new entrant into Chapter Two of cloud, and, and kind of what yeah. I'm saying is qualified on the basis of my old role where I run a very big tech shop and I kind of dealt with all of the large and small technology companies and in many ways helped do co-engineering with some of the big big brands that we hear about now to get their offering correct. Um, the um, And I could see that there was a, a gap in the marketplace that wasn't being well served, which was enterprises. Uh, so understanding what it is to operate an enterprise space with, with heritage environments was number one. Number two was that the when you're a kind of a, a single-play company where you're a cloud service provider and the answer is cloud, what's the question? You again don't, you can't play into the um, the enterprise space because as an enterprise you will have some of your environments on premise and have other environments in a in a more uh, distributed cloud basis. Um, and then the third element would be that it, the world was going to be multi-cloud as, as I was putting architectures together and the the cloud service providers and it's a very legitimate. Um, mechanisms to grow your business were becoming more and more proprietary um, in terms of how they were putting their solutions together. And obviously you get concerned around things like vendor lock-in and economics, but the thing that concerned me the most was being locked out of innovation from a particular technology vendor, because that's that point that I made earlier on, which is you can't be agile your changing environment if you're tied to an innovation stack of a company. So the approach that we're taking here at IBM, and it's the strategy that our chief executive, Arvind Krishna laid out when he took the role in April, is to be a hybrid cloud business where AI is built into everything that we do. And I, It's funny, it's kind of a whole bunch of CIO friends could, could take a, a, an exhalation of air out because of saying, I'm really pleased that you said this because we've had our business saying everything's got to be cloud as if cloud was the panacea to everything. And you've kind of created an aperture that it will be on-prem it will be off-prem and it will be multi-cloud. And that the assets that we have here at IBM, if I could just spend a few more minutes on this topic, um, I, again, I could see as an external pr- um, consumer of IT are entirely um, differentiated in terms of meeting those business needs. And those business needs are actually transforming business processes, not simply moving applications or workloads of your computers and your data centers to put them on somebody else's computers and data centers. I mean, just, that's colossally uninteresting and non-strategic and doesn't add any business value. But what does add business value is if you kind of build it from a technology perspective and a business process in, you'll know this from your role. And everybody else listening to this will know it as a practitioner, is the IT exists to support the business process. And the business process will have a system that relates to applications, data sets. Those applications and data sets, like children, have different needs from a compute or from a memory perspective and therefore can't just land on x86. Uh, And therefore, what IBM brings is the ability to actually land those workloads on a landing zone that could be x86 or it could be power or it could be Z. And obviously, being the leading company in the space of quantum can also have quantum there as well. But the final element is that the x86 um, that we have for IBM's cloud is for more mission-critical workloads where you care more about your availability, performance, and uh, capacity and the risk posture. But we recognize that there's other workloads that don't have to have those levels of capability, and therefore you can drop it on another cloud provider. So we'll meet the customer where they are, whether they're Bare Metal, Pivot Cloud Foundry, VMware, whatever it is, right? Um, and we'll give them the right silicon for the children of their applications to be able to support the actual business processes and transform those processes that get decalcified decalcifi- over time.
0: Well, so I'd like to, uh, like I said, I, we provide solutions that are almost always hybrid. Hybrid is kind of a unique yeah. space in the market that we fit. Um, And then multi-cloud also. So you're, you know, you're singing to the choir here and I'm loving it. There was, there were a couple of quotes that I heard from you. I'm going to share them with you. I'd love you to get deeper into them. One of them, I, when you said it, I think it was you, I, I laughed. It was God created the earth in seven days. That's because He had no legacy. <laughs> and you were talking about hybrid cloud. Maybe expand on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, the, so we've all, in our roles, in your role, you've built yeah. environments that you wish you hadn't, and and you're tied <laughs> to them. Not just from a technology perspective, because they're difficult to unravel. Yeah. You also sat with the balance sheet of depreciating assets. So even right. though you would like to transform some out, you've got assets that have got some life relative to where they are. And therefore, the bubble cost associated with the economics of transferring out isn't going to work. work. Nor will be, and finally, a CTO that's been to the line of business has said, I've got this great thing I want to do. I want to modernize your applications to move them out of our data centers and move them to somebody else's data center, and it's going to cost an exponential amount of money over that period. And the LOB league will say, well, what features do I get that will help you sell me more? Well, you're not. We're going to move it to containerized offerings, and so forth, you don't simply get the funding for that, right? You do when you're writing your new applications. And, and the point I'm trying to make here is that we can meet customers in terms of, yes, we'll drive you on a containerized strategy with our assets of Red Hat OpenShift. Um, and, and really, you should be looking at OpenShift. You shouldn't be looking to hire exotic cube skills and roll it your own. There's far mm-hmm. better things for you to be spending your engineering resource on than doing that. I learned that, the hardware. Hardware when I was at the, um, in my old role but we, we can bring you on the journey to still get business value driven for your LLB leads and for your customers um, to drive your business forward on the different environments that you've got. We, we're not as opinionated to say the answer's cloud. Mm. It's our cloud, and it's only x86. Mm, um, yeah. So so that's what I kind of mean about the legacy piece. Um, the, um, the good thing about obviously IBM in the cloud context here is that we're a kind of a startup in the other cloud space, as We move into chapter two, albeit I've got a lot of good assets to play with And it's fairly well capitalized from the actual right. work, parent company. But I haven't got the wealth of legacy that a 14-year-old um, cloud provider sure. has or, or a seven-year-old because they'll be into the next cycle of the issues that they're yeah. so So um, that's kind of ties back to that and, and much more in terms of what it means to deal with legacy.
0: Yeah so one of the things i find really interesting is in talking with technology leaders and in my space is you know just a sl- small little sliver of the space that you're dealing in right and the conversations that we have around cloud is we like the agility of cloud we like the fact that i'm offloading some of the management and all of that kind of stuff right but we don't like the fact that you can't control the architecture of what's happening in that cloud, right? And I say to people, there's no such thing as cloud. It's just somebody else's computer that you don't get to control. So the the question becomes often this, the reason the motivation for hybrid seems to be more around security and the ability to control and predict the architecture than it is, you know, the, the, um, simplicity of moving to somebody else's architecture in the cloud. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so so the whole kind of promise initially of cloud being a cheaper way to run your applications. I mean, I did a huge amount of analysis on this from kind of 2015 onwards, and I just couldn't see where that held true when you operated at a reasonable scale um, because you've got different economic issues to face when you're building out hundreds of data centers in a given year. You've got all these depreciating assets, and you're always building supply to meet the demand that you're anticipating. But there's other value in terms of having a resource pool that's not on your premise. So, your ability to actually get better business continuity in a a, a more elegantly architectured way, the ability to actually have things built for you with people with the skill sets that you wouldn't be able to hire. We live in a kind of a war for talent in our roles as technologists, and therefore, it's very difficult to actually compete um, particularly against some of the big cloud enterprise and IBM. And from a cybersecurity perspective, there is simply not enough human talent around the world for any company, let federal agencies, let alone kind of uh, enterprises to meet that need. So if you can k- kind of work with companies that are kind of thinking deeply about this, then you're in a, in a stronger place. And that's very much kind of what I built into the into the cloud uh, here at IBM, because that was another issue I saw with the cloud service providers, which is their general purpose cloud providers. And therefore they were trying to be vanilla to everybody when some people didn't want vanilla. But what I built for was the regulated industries. So building a cloud architecture, hyperscaler architecture, and putting a service catalog on top of it, everybody can do that. You can do it yourself. You can build your own private cloud and do those things. There's no differentiation there. There was when Werner Vogels wrote his PhD paper the CTO for AWS uh, many years ago, which I had on my nightstand for a while because, yes, we are geeks. But there's no longer any competitive advantage in terms of what I do, what AWS does, or what Google does, or what um, Microsoft does on their their IaaS piece. But where there is differentiation is for regulated industries, building in the laws, rules, and regulations to the cloud from the outset. So you cover cybersecurity, data privacy, and that band, And we keep that updated on that non-functional set of requirements um, every month. Um, And we do that in collaboration with 40-plus financial institutions that feed into those requirements because the other mode of operation in any other um, cloud provider that you work with is you have to build those yourself. And then the CTO at the next bank has to build it or the CTO at the next federal agency or the CTO at the next health care company has to build it every time. And that's like kind of everyone building their own version of electricity, doesn't make any sense. Um, so we did that away. And then the other real, really uh, nice thing about this, Brad, was, I don't know how it perhaps applies to your industry, but it certainly applies to all financial companies, is it would take us 18 months to onboard a new tech vendor, large or small, into the bank, because there's a whole raft of vendor risk assessment things that we have mm-hmm. to do. And if you're a sales force or a service now, you can kind of handle that. And every bank is different. You have to do it every time with a different bank. But if you're a small fintech that we as a bank wanted to get at that point of innovation and you as a fintech want to supply to us, after 18 months you'd have had so much brain damage you'd have forgotten what your actual (laughs) innovation was. So the idea of actually building the controls in from the very outset is you as a a financial services fintech you can land on our platform, Mm -hmm. go through the certification process which is in 18 months, it's a lot quicker, and then the whole marketplace opens up to you in terms of you can provide immediately. So it's just a quick on-way onboarding. That's really good news for chief C technology officers because they can get that innovation quickly. And it's really good news for the fintechs because they can actually remember what their point of innovation was as well. And that that's a, a really big, powerful thing where the value exchange sits there for the for our customer, the financial services firm, the fintech that we have on our platform, and obviously for us. And then the other final nice thing about IBM is we figured out that it's not a good idea to have partners on your platform, and we figured this out decades ago, and then actually go and steal their, their business from them at a lead point. We're kind of a lot more mature in terms of how we work with our partners. We're a lot more trusted. Um, and I think if you kind of read the various kind of tech press, we'll kind of, you'll understand what I'm talking about. That, that, we, we don't work on that business. We want our partners' businesses to grow up by providing innovation to our customers and as a consequence of that, we'll grow
0: So I think one of the, the overriding themes that I'm hearing from you is that you're clearly passionate about the tech, but you're super passionate about people and how the tech aligns with people. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit and put it in the context maybe of leadership. And here's where I'm headed with it. So as a CTO a lot of people confuse my role with a CIO. And so they think what I'm doing is I'm focusing technology for our company as a business enabler for our organization. And I I clearly do some of that, but most of my focus is outward. Even when I'm focused on our organization, the change I'm making is really to help us align outward with the customer. So where's your role? Are you more inward-focused? Are you more outward-focused? How do you align with that? I've
1: always been um, outward-focused, but you've got to give a clear sense of purpose to the teams that you lead as to how they align to the business imperative and the customer experience. And um, I've worked at places, um, um, or I've observed places, I've not personally worked at places, where the IT function very often could be working anywhere. It doesn't really matter what industry they're in. And that, that disconnects them from the actual purpose and mission of the company. So the, the, my own role in here, I always do a town hall the week after the chief executive of here or Brian Moynihan at Bank of America on the quarterly results and tie those results in a non-numbers-based way and way that people have worked to, to, the, to the marketplace. Um, so you get this sense of purpose and an, an, an alignment to the actual colors of the company that they're playing for to actually understand how they can drive them forward. And it's essential to do that. But I've learned through a lot of experience. And experience, if you distill it, is making mistakes, right? <laughs> so, sure. so I've got a lot of lot of experience. The um, and, and I guess the, the key thing I learned is that as a technologist, you can get really kind of enamored about the technical architectures, the transformation of the technology, the software titles, everything you're doing. But unless you put the same amount of work into understanding the operating model, the functional work that people are doing, and how they actually structure their jobs... And how you continue to give them opportunities, whether it's through experience, assignments, um, education, to be clear on what their career path is, you're really not doing a very good job um, at all. Um, you can be a, have great architectures, but if you haven't got the people that kind of sit around that to make that thing really come alive and to draw upon all the brilliance that everybody has within them, Brad, um, you're kind of diminishing the actual full range of assets that is a leader that you have. And, and the final point I'm going to make around that is, there's a lot of talk about talent. We all, I guess, we all sit in talent reviews. Who's the top talent and everything else? And I just, from experience, don't believe in that, right? And, and you can see where people can be incredibly talented, but unless they have grit and unless they apply themselves and have, unless they have the right attitude, that talent is for absolutely nothing. And I would take somebody with grit and a, and a curious mind and a positive attitude and resiliency. And they're all qualities that anybody can build, right? The, the other stuff is this kind of genetics, that your arm's a bit longer so you can reach the basket or you, you're faster so you can run to sort of the rugby, rugby line quicker than other people. That's a genetic thing. But those are the qualities that I've talked about. Everybody can have. But they get kind of taken out of people because you'll have a talent conversation and most people are fairly humble and think, oh, well, you're not talking about me, so I'll kind of switch off. Just imagine if you switch everybody on. So, right. Let's just work on grit. Let's work on attitude. Let's work on being curious, having a growth mindset. You can get your whole population switched on. And then you've got a force multiplier in terms of how you move your organization on. And the ones that don't want to kind of demonstrate those qualities typically find that in the working environment isn't a good one for them. So they'll self-select out. And that's not a bad thing, right? So you've got to work on the basis that everybody has a light within them. It's your responsibility to turn it on as opposed to have a light that you shine upon them.
0: Yeah, so how do, you, how do you do that as a leader? How, how do you develop, to your point, you, you, can, you can train technical skill, but it's tougher to develop a set of attributes and characters and characteristics. Or, how do you do that as a leader? How do, you, how do you define what it is you want to develop? And then how do you produce that across a team?
1: It's this kind of very difficult thing to capture called culture. Yeah. And it doesn't come overnight. It takes a long time to land and a lot of consistency. And it's all value-based. Um, so you've got to create cultures where people can feel psychologically safe, to turn up to work to be themselves, to be able to express themselves. You've got to create a culture where people can challenge one another with positive intent. Um, but the positive intent is important. So don't use the the um, authority that you're given to challenge one another to be rude. <laughs> yeah bring charm to work in addition to intellect, right? So think about how you can kind of charm uh, with the actual intellect. And then there's other elements, which is um, it, it's far better to actually maintain quality of relationships than being right. This is the hardest part of technology, right? Because we get religious about our, our data points, but we only see the world through one degree of aperture if we do that. Whereas if you take it through 360 degrees, there is no right, right? There's just optimum. Um, And optimum only counts if everybody is aligned to what that optimum thing is. So that's a key element to to kind of get across to people. It's it's not about being right. It's about being understood. It's about getting shared comprehension. And then it's getting after that course of action and then doing course corrections as you get around it.
0: Yeah, that's so good. One of the things I find myself spending a lot of time with is if we don't define a goal, a vision that we're all moving towards, a playbook or whatever it is, um, then we end up looking at each other and that's where we become sometimes a little contentious. but but if we're all headed to someplace else, we're looking we're looking outward, and we as a team tend to get there. How do you develop that sense of vision within your team? How do you create that sense of it's not as important to be right, as it is to maybe get there together.
1: Yeah, um, it's a few points around that, which is that it's the communicator's responsibility to ensure that the person that's hearing them is comprehending it. It's not the person you're communicating to because it's so easy to hear things in a different way because people only hear what they understand. Therefore, you've got to have conversations to ensure that there is a shared comprehension around the, the message. And the message is going to be simplified. And I think that's part of the beautiful part of our jobs, which is we deal with so much complexity. And it's forever driving that complexity into the simplest message. It's almost kind of creating poetry because poetry is the simplest way of expressing a particular thing and distilling it down. And then it is just relentless repetition Until until the point you're boring, right? If you've got to be the point where I get it, you're being boring. Well, that's a, that's a success point on the journey for shared <laughs> comprehension.
0: <laughs> so teach me this: the, the whole concept between about hybrid cloud. I mean, it's a re- relatively simple concept to grasp. It's a complex process to put in place. How do you take these leadership skills that you you talk about in developing your team, and you apply that to leading a customer? Because that's a journey that a lot of customers haven't gone on before, and they have to, they, you have to kind of lead them to get there. How do you transfer those skills from internal to external?
1: The, I mean, the, the key thing is to understand is that cloud should never be anybody's strategy. It's like saying that a, a, a wrench is somebody's strategy, right? Or a, a spanner is somebody's strategy. Right? That's super it. good. Like cloud, is, cloud is not a strategy. It's just a mechanism. a tool amongst many of us to actually get to an outcome. And the other element is the tie to the business process. So, so what is it that you're actually trying to improve? Now, now the, the, the good thing about our jobs is we're always being in work. Because as soon as you lay down a business process, it starts to atrophy and it starts to calcify, right? So, And it's the underpinnings, it's the actual systems that actually do that. It isn't the people that are causing the problem. After a while, it's the poor people that fight against the systems that aren't working in their way to operate. The, um, so you kind of, kind of come in with that element. And then you can say, okay, well, that's too big for you to think about. Let's deconstruct it. So let's look at, say, uh, a process from one of my old worlds, so kind of wealth management. Break it down to make a trade. So what's the technical architecture that sits beneath making a trade from an online presence? So, so what do you click? So how do you come through the web front ends? What's the architecture there? And, 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 and. And what are you looking to improve? So it could be, right, we're we'll going to be able to deal with big market volatility so, okay, then how do you instrument all of the elements within that system to determine that you can actually have the level of um, capacity uh, kind of uh, kind of scale out in areas of volatility? So it's then not a capacity approach just for capacity sake. Actually, if we do this on a Monday morning where when somebody wants to, do to change their positions and everyone comes in at the same time, they can come in and that's a better customer experience. It's a better customer interaction than what it would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so you're helping people in their lives that sends people's lives. All oh, right, like you've turned that technical thing into a human thing and into a thing that's actually tied to our mission. Yeah, That's it. That, that's
0: it right there. We, we call it human impact. If the things that we do create an impact for the people that we're serving, our customers, then that's how we win. Um, one of the metrics that we talk about in our in our leadership circle, it's not a metric that we publish is we ask ourselves the question, how many times has the key point of contact that we've been working with now for two or three years, how many times have they been promoted? And if what we're doing isn't actually aligning to their ability to succeed with their goals, if they're not able to accomplish their outcomes, we have to rethink what we're doing.
1: I love that, bro. I mean, I'm going to say that. I collaboration with we'll sacred ideas. I love that idea.
0: <laughs> Take it, man, for sure. I'm stealing a lot of what you've been sharing today. Hey, there's a there's an exercise we went through with my team recently, and uh, we were we were together just just those who who d- report to me directly, and we were doing some planning for the rest of the fiscal year. And um, it, uh, I asked them a question. So, are there certain attributes of the pandemic that you would like to see endure? And uh, it came from this uh, realization. I was reading an article, and this is going to sound silly, so don't don't laugh at me too much, but I was reading this article about World War II and how the hemline of of a woman's skirt moved from below the knee to above the knee in an attempt to conserve material for the war effort. It's been there ever since. And so then I started researching what other things out of World War II stay today with us, like commercial flight and radar and all these other things. And I began to ask my team uh, what parts of the pandemic have really impacted our business? And then what what parts of those attributes would we like to see continue forward? So I'll ask you, what parts of the pandemic has really impacted your team um, or the way you lead or whatever?
1: Yeah, a couple of things before I dive into it. The thing that impacted me when I was in my uh, in my twenties, was in World War Two, they had the pubs shut at ten thirty on Sunday evenings to ensure productivity on Monday mornings, and I just thought that was very restrictive in terms of my ability to have an extra pint. The um, but putting that to, <laughs> putting that to one side, the um, there's a few things that I kind of have observed, kind of with uh, COVID, so good and bad. So um, the good thing is um, that you've so when you work in a work context your kind of mindset is set that you're in a corporate office. People actually dress differently in terms of how they come into work. And you never really get a human connection without a lot more effort on that individual. Now, we're in situations where we're seeing people in whatever room of the house that they're actually in, their children are coming in, or their is barking or whatever else. And I think it's just made people a lot more tolerant for people's personal circumstances and connected on a more human basis. And ever would have been possible um, without the situation. Um, a lot more empathy, I guess, is the summary that I would see, which I would hope that we maintain kind of going forward and that kind of human connection and that sense of you don't truly know what's going on in somebody else's life other than what's going on there. So kind of, if they're having a bad day, step back a little bit, just be respectful of that. Um, I think we've, or it's maybe we, maybe it's just me, have swung too far in terms of always on, always in front of the screen. That, that isn't that isn't part of is what work is, but work is actually about sitting down and thinking at times or drawing architectures or reading books or having one, one conversation saying, Brad, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? The, um, that's kind of being lost a little bit. Um, and the other element, and I've got no scientific factor back what I'm about to say, but even when you're doing it through this, in terms of you get the nonverbal communication and you get the verbal communication, but there's, some, there's something chemical when you're in a room with a bunch of people, that gets us to create a juices going more, I believe. Uh, and, I, and I've done a few kind of engineering workshops uh, over recent weeks, and we just brought, we've made breakthroughs that we've not been able to make um, prior. And, I, and it's it's not perceptible as to what it is other than the fact that we're all in a room and just picking up different things that you wouldn't pick up that are the, beyond the nonverbal and verbal.
0: Yeah. So I'm going I'm gonna press down on that actually because I find that remarkably true. And uh, as a result of the pandemic, so many of us are, are eager to travel to get together with people. So here's, here's something I think I've learned as a result of all of this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think there's a difference between influence and impact. I think I can influence people through social media or email or whatever. But if I'm going to impact somebody, if I'm actually going to do something that's going to transform them or help them do a course correction, I think impact requires proximity. If I think about it through Newton's law, an object set in motion stays in motion and less impacted by another object. If I really want to create a course correction or a transformative outcome, I think it requires time and proximity. Proximity is a requirement for actually impacting somebody or an organization or a customer. What's your thought on that?
1: I, I, I think there is. I guess I think you're completely correct. I hadn't thought about it in that context, but again, I'm... I'll take that from, from you as well, Brad. But I, I think there's also an energy piece as well. We, we we get more energy. We're social social beings, so we get more energy um, from it. And, and I guess for the reflections, what I have found is when I've been doing these things, I'm actually this, I'm fatigued afterwards. And I guess you, it's like when you exercise, you get fit. When you're in a social gathering, you you have to redevelop those kind of social gathering models. But but there is an, there's an energy spark that you get when you're together. Now, now no, what, I, what I'm not saying is everyone's going to come back into work again, everyone's going to be sat in their cube and everything else. I think this, this hybrid working model in addition to the thesis that we have in terms of Chapter 2 of um, cloud computing in a hybrid context, um, but um, but uh, I think you're completely correct in terms of that impact and then the energy that you can get um, from it as well, bringing atoms together The uh, in that respect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you look at it, and so now we're getting probably deeper than we should, but if you look at it from a quantum physics perspective, everybody, everything has a frequency, a resonant frequency in it. And I think that I can see you, and and we can we can exchange information and create even a connection with each other. But when you're in the same place, breathing the same area, of proximity to each other, I think that there's some sort of resonant thing that happens. You describe it as chemical. I, there's something that happens there that you, that you just can't synthesize through a virtual
1: connection. I agree. And may the yeah. force be with you, Brad. May the force be with you. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The, um, but now you've talked about quantum. What a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> I that we've got quantum computing in our cloud. It yeah. is Atoms. If I can do a real quick commercial on quantum computing, Hit it's it, man. So exciting. So, the, um, so you've got our entire careers are built on ones and zeros. Quantum is not digital. It is actually nature. It's atom manipulation, and you get a one and a zero and an in between, and that's why you can do floating point calculations in at, place at, at, for impairs. But but and I'm not a quantum physicist, but I'm kind of really interested in this stuff. And I've been to our labs over in Yorktown Heights. Um, and two things I'll say about that as well is um, if you've never seen Yorktown Heights, which is our research and development function, we have a few. Um, in my old role, I would go and see all technology companies, and I went to Apple's wonderful circular building. Yorktown Heights was first with that architecture, and it's more beautiful. Um, so, if nothing else. Kind of go and look up Yorktown Heights, and it's it's absolutely a gorgeous setting and a gorgeous building. But um, I met with Jay Gambetta, who's the quantum physicist, the lead person on this, and we're in the labs. And he said, "Oh, yeah, it runs it has to be a thousand degrees cooler than outer space for it to actually operate." So we work with. The we work with submarine manufacturers to build these hermetically sealed elements to encapsulate the thing. So the first thing is quantum computing is cooler than outer space. So there's the first data point for you. Okay, got it. Yeah, you know, but it's a it's a really funny thing as a tech geek, which I'm sure you'd want it to do as well, Brad. I'm in the thing, and it's it's again, if you've not seen what they look like, they're absolutely gorgeous pieces of, pieces of art when you see them. All the circuitry. Um, And I said, oh, Jay, can I take a photograph, a selfie in front of the uh, thing? No, but we've got one outside that you can, because we've wired that one incorrectly. So if anybody (laughs) sees the actual actual thing, they'll make their own thing. It's like a Willy Wonka kind of, yeah, you can see that one, but it's the wrong formula. So it'll actually make it taste horrible as opposed to good. Uh, It truly is. I mean, it's just like it, it inspires you to continue to kind of do our work. When you meet with brilliant people like the, uh, these oh, people with yeah. your quantum compute capability.
0: Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. I, I want to help us land our conversation. I I just want to say, man, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope you have too. I, I want to land the conversation by giving you a chance to, if there's a, a big thing, one thing in your mind, you said, hey, I'm going to be talking with uh, other CTOs on Modern CTO, um, and you wanted to get it across, what would that thing be?
1: I mean, there's a there's a few things. So, so, so IBM. So First and foremost, technology is a fashion business, right? We all know this. You kind of there's things that become fashionable and then they become unfashionable. And IBM probably sits in the unfashionable camp at the moment as a company. But we're pivoting the company under Arvin's leadership. Arvin's a technologist. He's out of research. He understands what technology is about. He lives several steps in the future and then applies that to a business context. And therefore, we're separating all parts of the company. So the strategic outsourcing, the labour-based piece, that separates away from us um, at the end of this year, and that that will be a good, vibrant business in and of itself. But it will be unfettered by being tied to what our future aspirations are. Um, so that's good for both parts of the actual exchange. The um, but we're a te- we are a technology company going forward. Um, and we, I think we can clearly see the issues that CTOs face in terms of this chapter one of cloud, which is just move your application to somebody else's computers. I mean, ultimately, why would you do that? It adds complexity from your resource pool perspective. data two operations become more complex. Cyber security is more complex. Your developers become less productive because they're building on the proprietary stack of cloud service provider one, cloud service provider two, and and your own environments. Um, so we're solving for those problems in terms of, We'll abstract above the actual different environments from a development perspective. So you talked about legacy. I built a new um, serverless capability called Code Engine, and it's not a legacy product by like the other providers. It puts together all form factors to actually abstract the developers away from the actual infrastructure. We also integrate the other cloud providers. So you've got a single pane of glass to operate with them. And we see in a respectful way relative to the other cloud service providers, a, a, a role for our resource pools, whether it's X86, power, z, and Quantum relative to the, the system architecture. And we don't see the other cloud providers as competition. We actually see them as partners um, in that you should be using multiple cloud providers from a system architectural perspective, but also from a resiliency and a concentration yeah. perspective. Um, and then you can also then pick the innovation as a CTO from them, as opposed to being tied to you've not only got a cloud strategy, your strategy actually is cloud service provider strategy. Why is a CTO, would you want to do that, right? Because that's no longer your strategy. You made that point at the very beginning in terms of, Mm -hmm. yeah. So tie yourself across a number of different areas. And that's what we built our strategy on going forward with the capabilities Mm -hmm. that we have across Red Hat and um, the uh, IBM capabilities. Um, So take the conversation with an open mind and listen to kind of this different, fresh way that we've got of thinking, and the, the role that we can play in terms of helping you have that level of choice that you wouldn't necessarily get on the more proprietary ways. And the answer from, from IBM isn't just cloud and x86. The answer is, let's understand what your problems are that we're solving for, and let's play a part in doing that. And that final part is, with the strategic outsourcing business, which is still a really strong business and growing, that approach was, we'll take over everything, and ready for you. That isn't the philosophy of technologists. We're saying, okay, how do we work in a piece part relative to your overall architecture in the knowledge and the humility that we can't solve for everything?
0: Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Um, one final question. If there's a uh, engineer, a technologist that's uh, listening in, and they aspire someday to be a leader, maybe a CTO, maybe lead a business unit like you're doing, um, but stay in the tech space, what's one word of advice that you would give them early in their career?
1: Always be curious as to the next thing. Um, when you first, and I I did this, I'm sure you did as well, Brad. The first thing that you get into is the thing that you feel you have to be wedded to from a technology perspective and never get married to technology because um, it will always come and go, typically in five or seven year cycles. Um, so understand that and go deep, go very deep in terms of understanding it, but also be looking left and right in terms of what the next trends are that's coming through and make continue to make the actual shift as you go through it. So the breadth of experience that you've got and I've got is because I started doing dial tone and private circuits at uh, at Comcast, right through then to the full range of services that I kind of built out there. And that all builds out a a more um, complete, comprehensive understanding of how Um, networks are put together from all the different layers on the OSI stack right through there into how you put security in place and so on and so forth. Um, So always have an insatiable curiosity that naturally draws you to working into um, technology. Um, And then to your point, Brad, as as opposed to my point, never forget the people. Um, They're they're 51% of the solution, so they always get the majority voting right.
0: Yeah, that's so good. Howard, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I am particularly am just so um, encouraged, maybe uh, inspired to to continue to look at how technology fits what people are trying to do. I love that, the way that you're doing that at IBM and the whole story around hybrid cloud. It's been great to learn more about it. I want to say thank you for joining us on the Modern CTO
1: Podcast.
0: And we're going to connect again sometime
1: soon, I'm sure. I'm sure we will, Brad. i love to do that as well. Pick your brains as opposed to me. This is my own voice. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have
0: topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn